Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, will Mexico survive its presidential election? Mexican political scientist and columnist Denise Dresser discusses candidate Andres Manuel López Obrador's challenge to the election outcome and the credibility gap that a Felipe Calderón presidency faces. Known for her bold, insightful, and unbiased commentary on Mexican politics, Dresser shares the backstory of this long and winding presidential campaign and delivers the definitive analysis on its historic outcome. Dr. Dresser is a professor of political science at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México and a prolific and widely read writer on Mexican politics and U.S.-Mexico relations. Delivered as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy, here is Denise Dresser. I'd like to preface my remarks with a call to those in the audience who have already made up their mind about the Mexican election and either believe that it was completely fraudulent or impeccably clean, those who inhabit their respective faith-based communities and seem unwilling to venture beyond them. I'd like to ask you to join me this evening in a community of reason inhabited by people like me who are not on one side or the other. I feel that I'm standing in a position of what I choose to call patriotic nonpartisanship in a country that has become increasingly partisan. And people like me in Mexico today are in no man's land because the country has become so divided. So I request that you join me in that particular space with a cool head and a calm heart, because Mexico has become a house divided, a place where on a daily basis a fight, an ongoing fight, takes place between members of the National Action Party and supporters of Andres Manuel López Obrador, a fight between the privileged and the poor, the analysts who are viewed as committed to the cause or those who are denounced as having sold out, those who believe that the election on July 2nd was immaculate, and those who speak of monumental fraud, fighting, denouncing, marching, confronting each other, unconditional supporters of a cause that they fight for with great passion. Because the election and the post-electoral crisis do indeed reveal a divided country, a divided electorate, where many people still ask if Mexico should gamble on market-led reform as it has over the past 20 years, or if state intervention is the route forward. Those who support the economic model of the last decade and those who suggest it's time to replace it. Those who insist that the precepts of the Mexican Revolution need to be refurbished and those who think they need to be maintained. These are perennial questions, repetitive questions, that don't have clear answers in Mexico today, questions of a country that still hasn't decided what its destiny is going to be. And July 2nd, the election on that day, underscored the dilemma. So there's no clear consensus in Mexico at this time 
on the route that the country should take going forward. The electorate is genuinely divided. We saw on July 2nd that many voted for change and many voted for continuity. Neither Felipe Calderón nor Andrés Manuel López Obrador were able to impose their vision on a broad majority of the electorate or extend their base of support to win a clear-cut victory. Felipe Calderón became the beneficiary of those who feel that the Fox government has worked for them, while Andrés Manuel López Obrador became the candidate of those who feel betrayed by the Fox administration. But in a very tight election, none of these, neither of these groups was able to create an imposing majority. In a polarized election and reinforced by the post-electoral crisis that occurred after July 2nd, each one has remained with his part of the country, con su pedazo del país each one with its own president now, which will make it very difficult to consolidate a very incipient and fragile democracy, at least that seemed to be showing advances in the electoral arena. Difficult to consolidate because the divisions that I speak of, despite the rendering of the verdict by the tribunal, and despite the fact that the planton on reforma has been lifted, the divisions remain. They're there every day in Congress, in the press, in the debates among analysts, among citizens, among members of the same family, fanaticisms cultivated within one group and fed by the other, creating a country where it has become difficult to express an opinion without being skewered for doing so creating a post-electoral situation in which 30% of the country believes that there was fraud, where the losing candidate does not accept his defeat and has established a parallel administration while he sends the country's institutions to hell. This is the complex reality that Felipe Calderón will have to deal with, calling for consensus, understanding that he does not receive a general mandate from a divided population, understanding that in order to govern successfully or at all, he is going to have to build a big, open, multicolored tent capable of including even his worst adversaries. So I'd like to begin with an analysis of what happened prior to the election, because it's the only way of understanding where we are today. Well, what happened during the campaign? Felipe Calderón and Andrés Manuel López Obrador, each one of them went out there during the campaign trail and essentially spoke to their hardcore base, hoping to bring it out to the polls. Each one appealed to his portion of the country. And that's why, I reiterate, there wasn't a forceful winner on election day. That explains why there wasn't an important altering of electoral preferences in the last weeks prior to the election. Each one of the candidates arrived on July 2nd showing the limits of the campaign model they had chosen to use. Calderón did everything that he was told to do. The war room, the participation of Dick Morris in a very effective, if nasty, campaign strategy, 
He became, Calderón, a professional politician, disciplined, well-trained, on-message, hard-hitting. He was told to inaugurate a campaign of contrasts, and that is exactly what he did, to try and differentiate himself from López Obrador and win votes simply because he wasn't his adversary. He became the candidate of stability, sensibility, of comforting gradualism, and the beneficiary of a very negative campaign that probably has become a trend in Mexico that is here to stay. The phrase Felipe Calderón used, López Obrador, un peligro para México, López Obrador, a danger for Mexico, gave his campaign the impetus it hadn't been able to acquire in at least the first two months. And it allowed him to build an electoral coalition that was bigger than the PAN's traditional base of support. <coughs> Because fear transcended class divisions, it became a universal corrosive that cut across different groups, different regions, Many remembered the years of instability, of economic instability, and didn't want to relive them. Many remembered the moments of crisis in the 1970s and 80s and didn't want to suffer through them again. Fairly or not, Calderón's message did have the resonance he sought and the impact he wanted. It became, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, the tipping point for Calderón. It turned an election that hadn't been competitive, competitive and in Calderón's benefit. But that strategy, as we saw, wasn't enough to win the election by more than 230,000 votes. Because even though the National Action Party, the PAN, doesn't want to recognize it or admit it, there are many Mexicans for whom institutions don't work. The rule of law that Calderón trumpeted doesn't exist, Mexicans for whom the government just doesn't respond. Those saw Felipe Calderón during the campaign and didn't recognize themselves in him. Calderón won planting fear vis-a-vis -vis his adversary instead of understanding or recognizing the causes that explain his existence. Now, paradoxically, López Obrador uh, suffered the same thing, faced the same problem. The project of the nation, el proyecto de nación that he proposed throughout his campaign was equally exclusive and monochromatic. The country he wanted to govern where there only seemed to be room for the poor. The candidate that throughout the campaign never said what he was going to do for the middle classes or how he was going to strengthen their expansion. The candidate who told Mexico how he planned to alleviate poverty but never spelled out how he intended to create wealth. The social leader who didn't know how to become a professional politician, who didn't understand the need to move from the extreme left of the political spectrum to the moderate left or even to the political center a strategy that led leftists in other countries like Tony Blair and Ricardo Lagos and Felipe González to victory. 
the left in other places that transformed historic grievances into practical proposals, the left that reinvented resentment and turned it into a policy platform, the left that suggested that it was necessary to combat inequality as well as propose measures to assure prosperity. Andrés Manuel López Obrador didn't know or didn't want to think in these terms. He insisted on making history when he should have just done politics. He thought he didn't have to convince. He believed that it was enough to exist. He insisted on presenting an alternative project for the nation, but never articulated concrete, viable proposals on how to reach that goal. He insisted on speaking of los de abajo, those below, alienating los de arriba, those above, and ignoring Mexico's middle classes. He thought he could win this election simply by supporting a good cause thinking that that would be enough, and it wasn't. And that's why he ended up on July 2nd tied to only 35% of the electorate, without understanding that in order to win, he had to convince the undecided, the independent, the ambivalent members of the electorate who didn't feel represented by a left that looked towards the past for answers instead of towards the future. And that's why I think Felipe Calderón and Andrés Manuel López Obrador ended up in a dead heat race. Neither of them was able to obtain the additional support they would have needed to win by a larger margin. They essentially conducted campaigns only for the part of Mexico that resembled them and ignored many of the centrist voters who felt alienated by the radicalism of either of the two polls. You're listening to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. This is Zocalo. This fall, mark your calendar for thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents four fascinating talks by global thinkers. For information on upcoming events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Denise Dresser's talk on Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? Now, what happened on July 2nd? I think that 35.8% of the electorate chose not to vote for Andrés Manuel López Obrador to transform him into what he had tried to present himself as during the campaign as the person who could cure Mexico's ills. But many in Mexico thought that he would go against the Hippocratic oath, you shall not cause harm. Many believed that he would worsen the country in his attempt to cure it. And yes, there was what Mexicans call a guerra sucia, a very nasty, dirty campaign. And yes, there was, as we have now realized from the verdict of the Federal Electoral Tribunal, there was intervention on the part of Vicente Fox and many wealthy businessmen. And yes, there probably was 
a politicized use of social programs in several key states. And yes, the Federal Electoral Tribunal deserves to be criticized for mistakes it committed during the campaign and during election night. And yes, Patricia Mercado from a small leftist party stole away votes from Andrés Manuel López Obrador. And yes, the northern governors of the PRI told their base to go out and vote for Felipe Calderón. And yes, the political and economic establishment of Mexico closed ranks against a politician it perceived as dangerous. But all of that does not explain the undeniable fact that Andrés Manuel López Obrador spent three years as a front runner in this race, and at times he was ahead by more than 15 points, and yet he lost. It was his election to lose, and many in Mexico think that he actually lost it, because he stood in front of the country as a doctor, willing to cure the country's ills, with a medical bag full of instruments to cure illnesses, both political and economic, of the 1990s with instruments from the 1950s. And that's why, for many, the remedies that he offered were more fearsome than the illness itself. For many members of the Mexican electorate, the worst cure for Mexico's problems was the possibility of a president who could not listen, who was reluctant to learn, who was reluctant to travel, who felt that it wasn't necessary to do so, a candidate who offered to redistribute but never said how he would make Mexico grow. And so his recipes convinced many segments of the electorate but alienated others. The fear vote and the campaña de miedo that Felipe Calderón stirred provoked an epidemic, particularly in northern states, because Andrés Manuel López Obrador had not vaccinated himself against it. On the contrary, he fed it with the rhetoric of constant confrontation, the rhetoric of constant division, the country of the privileged and the country of the poor, el México de los de arriba contra el México de los de abajo. He never learned how to speak in another way, and I think this is what did him in. Now, those who indeed did vote for Andrés Manuel López Obrador, the 30% of the electorate convinced that there was fraud, they're not going to disappear. They're not going to remain silent just because of the verdict rendered by the electoral tribunal. They're not going to simply accept the victory of Felipe Calderón. That Mexico that López Obrador painted in yellow, the color of his party, inhabited by millions of people who believe in him, is there. And they follow him not necessarily out of poverty or ignorance, as some of López Obrador's detractors have argued. Those who voted for him on July 2nd believe that his diagnosis of the country is correct. They think that it's not possible to keep on taking aspirins to combat a cancer, that it's not viable to keep on taking cough syrup for pneumonia. They think that Mexico needs more than palliatives, more than placebos, and that López Obrador's radicalism reflects 
their situation in life. Now, if you would examine Lopez Obrador's conduct since the night of July 2nd, I think that it's possible to compare it to what the French soccer star Zidane did during the last game of the World Cup, the famous headbutt that led a French commentator to cry when he witnessed it. Why, 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 in the last minutes of a game where he had played so well and where he had led his team to the wonderful position it was in? This is the question that many on the left in Mexico are asking themselves. Examining a candidate who demanded a recount at the same time he said he would never accept its results. A left that's bewildered by someone that it supported who said that he, that he didn't want an annulment of the election but then sent out his party operatives to try and do everything to get the election annulled. That is the confusion that López Obrador is creating not only in the left, a man who didn't want to be classified as a danger, who refused to be classified as a danger, and now insists on behaving in what many view as a dangerous way. Since the night of the election, I look at what Andrés Manuel López Obrador is doing, and I'm disconcerted. I'm worried. I see a man who is increasingly combative, who is increasingly confrontational, who is increasingly anti-institutional, someone who speaks of the monumental fraud committed against the people of Mexico, but has not been able to provide compelling and convincing evidence that that occurred. Someone who one day declared that cybernetic fraud had taken place, and the next day said that it had been done in the old-fashioned way. Someone whose contradictory positions inspire a lack of confidence in many of those who, like me, actually voted for him. Because it made no sense to demand for a recount, vote by vote, and at the same time say he would never accept the results of the recount. It made no sense to decry the illegality of the election and at the same time accept the advances of his party the PRD, in the same election. It made no sense to demand that the votes be examined and at the same time suggest that the election should be annulled. It was not a good strategy to disqualify the whole game and at the same time, since July 2nd, insist that he won it. It was not a good strategy to call for a recount and at the same time say he would not respect its results. So why the contradiction? Well, in this election, Andrés Manuel López Obrador turned the PRD into the second electoral force in the country. He duplicated the vote for the left that went from 17% to 35% of the vote in less than six years. He has built a broad base supported by a social movement. And he's going to do everything in his power to assure that that movement stays alive. And therefore, this explains his post-electoral strategy and the risks that it entails to exist 
López Obrador believes that he has to keep on fighting, and he will continue to do so. First, as a candidate who declared that the election was fraudulent, and now as a social leader who will not back down. Because statement after statement, position after position, López Obrador is becoming increasingly radical. His eye isn't on the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months. It's really on the next couple of years. He wants to consolidate his base and be a political force for the future. He wants to exalt the feelings of 10 million voters or less, even if he loses the moderates that voted for him on the way. His role, as he sees it, is no longer to play by the rules of the game, but to break the rules of the game. His goal is no longer to position himself to run in six years, but to continue polarizing the country, to be the moral president of southern Mexico and confront the rest of the country from there. The kind of deep transformations that will benefit the poor and strengthen the institutions that Mexican democracy needs will not take place by merely fueling legitimate grievances instead of addressing them. And Mexico will not end up in a better place if hatred of a flawed political system precludes the possibility of reforming it. You're listening to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. On Tuesday, October 17th at 7 p.m., Zocalo and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages, in conjunction with the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West, present an evening with Neil Ferguson. Ferguson, an L.A. Times columnist and one of the most accomplished historians of his generation, discusses everything from Gunter Grass's past to the amateurish American empire. Moderated by Andres Martinez, Times editorial page editor. This event at the California Institute of Technology is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to Denise Dresser on Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? Stay tuned to Zocalo. This is 89.3 KPCC, now broadcasting two new digital HD radio channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish-language news service from the BBC, and The Current, an adult alternative music format from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD radio, visit our website at kpcc.org. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser on Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? I've analyzed the left. What's happening on the right? Well, my diagnosis is equally dire because many members of Mexico's establishment don't know how to deal with López Obrador. They think that... It's enough to hate him. 
They think it's, that it's enough to present the election as a done deal. They think that it's enough to not accept the possibility of a recount when by doing so, the right has fed into the perceptions that it has something to hide. And there you see Vicente Fox arguing that those who voted for López Obrador are renegades, and when he does so, he strengthens their ranks. Uh, there you have Felipe Calderón stuck in the rhetoric of the campaign, repeating incessantly, the country of the peaceful won over the country of the violent, repeating over and over again the words that he used to polarize the country in the first place, dividing Mexico between the good and the bad. And by acting in this way, he is contributing to tear apart the common spaces that he needs to rebuild. He is showing again and again that he doesn't understand the movement that is behind López Obrador and the legitimate hope that many people deposited in him. What the right doesn't understand, what Mexican elites don't understand, beyond what López Obrador has been doing over the past eight weeks, is that he is a symptom, a symptom of Mexico's failed efforts to modernize itself through half-hearted neoliberal reform over the past 20 years. Mexico followed the path of the Washington Consensus, but did it badly, with botched privatizations that transferred public monopolies into private hands, with economic reforms that benefited a handful of businessmen but few consumers, with bad results that are evident, an economy that doesn't grow enough, a business elite that doesn't compete enough, an economic model that concentrates wealth and doesn't redistribute enough of it, and as a result, 40 million Mexicans live on less than $4 a day. So for many, the continuity that Felipe Calderón is offering today would simply mean more of the same. So it's no wonder that López Obrador receives the support he does. He is a providential politician created by a dysfunctional political and economic system. He exists because of everything that Mexico's elites should have done a long time ago. Create opportunities for ordinary people by reforming Mexico's crony capitalism. They didn't do so. And the privileges of the few at the expense of the many explain why López Obrador's message resonates. It's as if he held up a mirror and confronted the country with a reflection of itself that it refuses to acknowledge. There are just too many Mexicans for whom the status quo doesn't work. There are too many people who seek the deep transformation of a country that historically has excluded them or forced them to cross the border in search of opportunities they can't find at home. The right dealt with those problems simply inciting hatred towards a man who was perceived as close to the dispossessed and that is what has become the real danger for Mexico, that in their efforts to disavow López Obrador, Mexican elites are simply disregarding the conditions that produced him. So it's worrisome to see that the other side doesn't have good answers. There are Mexico's entrenched elites behaving since the election as they always have done. 
sabotaging, blocking, postponing solutions to ancestral problems, promoting legislation that protects their interests, like the recent Ley de Radio y Televisión, the famous Ley Televisa, evidence of everything I've been speaking of. The complacent people who look at the x-ray that this election has provided of Mexico and think that it will be enough to simply expand a couple of poverty alleviation programs. Those elites who produced López Obrador and today do not know how to deal with him. Those groups and individuals who despise López Obrador and cannot comprehend why at least 20% of people in Mexico today still support him. The senators and the congressmen and the businessmen and the monopolists and the owners of the television networks who simply call López Obrador a lunatic without understanding that they have built the walls of the asylum. Now, throughout the campaign, Calderón used the same rhetoric that Fox did six years ago, the same modernizing words, the same promise to carry out the reforms, the structural reforms that Mexico needs. The problem is that that's not going to be enough. The modernization of Mexico in order to deal with the disaffection that López Obrador has brought to the table will require a real reform of the Mexican state that should probably include the transit to a semi-parliamentarian system so that the winner can't and doesn't take all. It will require a new set of electoral reforms to reduce campaign finance and the length of the campaigns themselves. It will require confronting vested interests in key sectors, in public and private monopolies. It will require overtaking AMLO on the left but convincing at the same time a population that is increasingly skeptical about structural reform, about the need to carry it out. And it will require constructing legislative majorities that support these changes instead of blocking them as they did at every turn during the Fox administration. Now, these are titanic tasks, Herculean tasks for a government that was born under siege, the Calderón government, and will continue to limp along that way. You're listening to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. This is Zocalo. This fall, mark your calendar for thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents four fascinating talks by global thinkers. For information on upcoming events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Now back to Denise Dresser in a Zocalo lecture entitled, Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? So what now? I think there are hard times ahead for Mexico's political system and fragile democracy because Mexico is walking dangerously towards a political system that is increasingly tribal, the country of all or nothing, the populist versus the right-wing man, el populista contra el derechista, the messiah versus the snob, the man who is dangerous to the right versus the man captured by the right, 
That is how each one of these groups see each other today. You can see it in debate after debate, march after march, angry word after angry word. How then to construct post-electoral consensus in a polarized country? How to regain confidence in discredited institutions? How to reform dysfunctional institutions when a key political actor insists on destroying them? These are urgent tasks that will not be possible unless there is social pressure from people like me and hopefully like you to regain and rebuild and reconstruct the political center of the country. And that will entail that both the panistas and the perredistas abandon the extremes they currently inhabit and build the common territory that will allow for the remodeling of a system that creates incentives for collaboration. In the best-case scenario, Mexico's post-electoral crisis could become a catalyst for the kinds of reforms Mexico needs and has long postponed. But for that to happen, those who hate Andrés Manuel López Obrador need to understand why he is so successful. He doesn't exist simply because he tells the poor people what they want to hear and tricks them. He doesn't exist just because he takes advantage of the ignorance of the poor, as some suggest. His predominance, the fact that he is still there, is a reflection of profound problems that too many Mexicans simply don't want to confront. The country of privileges that he speaks of is real. It exists. It's there in the Acuerdo de Chapultepec that Carlos Slim has put together that does not contain the word competition in it. The country of privileges is real. It exists in the new Ley Televisa that seeks precisely to impede competition. It's there in all of the businesses that avoid taxes and don't want to pay them, in the contracts that are doled out by the Mexican government under the cover of the normatividad existente. It's there in badly instrumented neoliberalism that preserved instead of transforming the privatizations that, as I said, transferred public goods into private hands. It's there in the bonos navideños in the Christmas bonuses, in the exorbitant salaries of Mexican public officials, in the rapacity of those who work for the Mexican government, but put parts of it into their pocket. The government is a shared booty. Now perhaps López Obrador hasn't had the best remedy for those problems, but he has had the merit of suggesting, of pointing out that they exist. A merit that Felipe Calderón has also had in underscoring what has worked for Mexico. Fiscal discipline and commercial liberalization and macroeconomic stability and the challenge of unavoidable globalization and how to deal with it. Everything that ties Mexico to the world, everything that other modern countries have adopted and have done so well, everything that promotes competitiveness in an international environment where countries are penalized if they don't pay attention to it. 
that route that Calderón has mapped out that Mexico is going to have to tread without shortcuts if it wants to prosper and cease to be the country it has always been. That route that other countries like Ireland and South Korea and Chile and Spain tread today. Countries that made the decision, the dual decision, to grow and share, to compete and educate, to create wealth and also distribute it better. So faced with this reality in which both of them are partially right, I think it is the obligation of those who have a stake in Mexico or a piece of their heart there to remind them that that is indeed the case, that they both are right. And therefore it becomes an obligation for people like me to tell Lopez Obrador and those who love him so passionately that it's not good enough to fight for just causes, that you have to do so with good instruments and within institutions so that you can actually reform them. And the obligation as well to tell Felipe Calderón and those who defend him so anxiously that continuity is not enough that we're going to have to build a much more equal country on the basis of that continuity. And therefore, I'll close saying that it is my obligation, and hopefully your obligation, to insist on these themes. Because even two months after the election, both sides are paving the road towards continued confrontation. Partisan affiliations have led to malice, and malice is producing extremists in Mexico. And I think that faced with them, it will be necessary for the country to have an insurrection, but not of the kind that López Obrador is speaking of, an insurrection of reason, an insurrection of citizenship, a necessary, just, defining, historic battle the responsibility of choosing a modern country instead of a tribal country, the challenge of building a democratic country without destroying it first, and the struggle for everything that we will have to do to reach that end, for real political representation through legislative re-election, to create accountability and transparency in a system that sorely lacks it, the struggle for the establishment, the creation of a political class that today is as rapacious as the privileged that López Obrador denounces. The struggle for an economic policy that, yes, puts the poor first without crucifying those who are not poor. The struggle for a social policy that reduces those terrible asymmetries that so many people ignore and at the same time creates conditions so that the poor can cease to be so. Everything that I think it is worth fighting and marching and mobilizing for, the shared country, the shared place of all of those Mexicans who deserve more than a tribal country. Because, well, in these days, it's become very fashionable to quote Gandhi, but I'd like to revert to his true spirit and end this talk with a question he posed. Imagine a country torn to pieces. How do we make a country then? Thank you very much. 
You're listening to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. This is Zocalo. Make sure to tune in and click on Zocalo Radio in the coming weeks as we bring to the air National Book Award winner Nathaniel Philbrick, Academy Award winning sound designer Richard King, archivist Maggie Rivas Rodriguez, and singer Dwight Tribble. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Up next, it's the audience's turn to ask questions of Denise Dresser. Stay tuned to Zocalo. I'm Pat Morrison. You're invited to a live debate Thursday evening on the merits of Proposition 85. One year after Californians turned down a nearly identical initiative requiring a parent to be told if a young daughter wants an abortion, they'll be asked to vote next month on a similar measure. Hear from the opponents and proponents and perhaps the audience, you. The broadcast begins at 7 p.m. at the Eagle Rock Center for the Arts. Want to be there? First go to kpcc.org. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment of Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election, Zocalo's audience asks questions of Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. I wonder if you can address the uh, electoral meltdown of the PRI and tell us what you think the political strategy of the PRI will be from this point forward, particularly in Congress. Well, it suffered a meltdown, but not enough of one, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, It still won, what, 21, 22% of the vote. The PRI is now going to play the same kind of role, and it is an unfortunate one for Mexico, that it played during the Fox administration, which is to be the semi-loyal opposition. The National Action Party does not have a majority in Congress And as a result, in order to push forward any kind of legislative reform, it will need the support of the PRI. So the PRI is going to essentially sell its love to the highest bidder, in this case the National Action Party, but toy with the left continuously as a way of pressuring the National Action Party into giving it what it wants in these negotiations. And unfortunately, that is going to keep the party alive for some time. I think the true test for the PRI will come in the midterm elections. And if what I foresee happening does indeed occur, the PRI is going to continue to lose positions and we're going to, I think, be headed towards increasingly a two-party system where there's a party of the center-right and a party social movement of the center-left in which there's no room, really, for a party like the PRI, which was in many ways a non-ideological party. It was a huge, disparate umbrella that was capable of including underneath it Mexicans from all walks of life. In a polarized environment, the PRI is going to be pushed out, but maintained through artificial respiration, through the political accords that the PAN will need to push forward in Congress. Um, A couple of... uh questions or let's say let me preface them with a with a comment i believe that the center for democracy here could also invite lorenzo mayer could also invite john ross well-noted writers and columnists 
that could probably explain the side of Lopez Obrador in a much broader historical context. I would like to ask you if you can make some comments around your differences with Lorenzo Mayer in terms of what he believes that AMLO's campaign is the campaign for those that always have lost and now have the possibility of winning against the ruling class. And the other is that maybe you can like touch in to what it means to live at $4 a day in contrast to Carlos Slim, who benefited from the, let's say, the auction sale of the para estatales, the government enterprises, who bought Telmex and now has become the third largest uh, billionaire in the world. You know? Maybe you can, so we can like sensitize ourselves. Um, you know, I don't have that many differences with Lorenzo Meyer. I think that what we have in common is far greater than our differences. He would explain, yes, the, the historical roots of the movement that Andres Manuel López Obrador has, and I'm not a historian, which is why I didn't delve into the past of the Mexican left, but I don't intend to deny the legitimacy of the movement itself or the deep-rooted problems that it is a symptom of. On the contrary, what I questioned more in my talk and in my position today is if this is the best route to address those grievances, because I think that this may be a self defeating, counterproductive position for the left to assume just in terms of how it intends to alleviate poverty in Mexico in the long term. Regarding Carlos Slim and the difference with the rest of the country, uh, how the rest, how majorities in Mexico live, I think it's quite self-evident. Carlos Slim was sold a monopoly in a key sector in the 10th largest economy in the world through a process in which that sector remained protected and still is protected in many, I believe, illegitimate ways from competition. And as a result, since the company was privatized in, I guess it was 1994, Carlos Slim has turned into the third wealthiest man in the world. I think he's the first now, given what Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have done in terms of donating their personal fortune. I've always said that Carlos Slim is el verdadero innombrable. Uh, he is the man we truly do not speak of because he is much more powerful and, and his role is in many ways more important to the future of Mexico, for better and for worse, than what takes place in Mexico's presidential politics today because of the percentage of GDP that his companies produce, because of the position that his companies have in terms of the Mexican stock market, because he controls a key sector that is going to determine Mexico's economic success or failure in the future, which is telecommunications, and he needs to be regulated. I have argued this for some time now, but I have been alone in this particular battle. It is something that I criticize the left for not assuming as a political banner over the past six years. This is a cause that the left should be fighting for, for level playing field capitalism, for the dismantling of monopolies, 
for the establishment of true competition for the rights of consumers. And I hope that in the future this is something that the PRD or whatever else the PRD becomes understands the necessity of taking Carlos Slim on. Uh, could you address a little bit about what's going on with PRD as far as Guatemala Cárdenas and also uh, what's going on today in the lower chamber of the Mexican Congress? A couple of, of the diputados uh, have risen up against and denounced Andrés López Obrador. One of the saddest episodes, I think, of Mexico's post-electoral crisis has been the way in which the PRD has turned against Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. On Saturday evening during the, the Democratic Convention, when his name was brought up, the crowd began to shout and uh, to whistle. He's being viewed as a traitor because he did not unconditionally support Andrés Manuel López Obrador because he was critical of various aspects of his campaign and his political positioning. And over the last week, he has come out publicly and said that López Obrador's decision to call himself president-elect is a bad decision that will negatively affect the Mexican left for a long period of time. In some ways, he is reaping what he sowed in terms of not institutionalizing the party that he founded. He ran the PRD as a caudillo, and then another caudillo took the party away from him. Regrettably, the PRD is losing sight of the fact that were it not for him, the party that they benefit from today would not exist. He's also being called a traitor for not having taken on the political establishment when fraud was committed against him in 1988. And I think we're talking about, about a very different historical context, and he would say the same. In 1988, there hadn't been the Velvet Revolution in the Czech Republic. The Berlin Wall had not fallen. There were no international examples of the peaceful transformation of an authoritarian regime through mass protests from below. I think he feared at the time that if he took the system on, his supporters would be massacred. And therefore, he decided to found a party. And I think that, in retrospect, the decision was a wise one. The left has gained a political foothold in the system with a party that is less than 20 years old. And I think that that is a significant accomplishment that Mexican Democrats should always be thankful to him for. Now, in terms of the lower house, well, if there are people who are coming out against López Obrador within the PRD in the Congress, given what I explained in my talk, I think it makes sense for them to do so from their perspective because they now fear that López Obrador is going to create an alternative party, that he's going to use the Frente Progresista as a political base to turn the PRD into something else, and that whatever he wins may become the PRD's loss and that these polls that we've been seeing over the past two months that reflect the electoral decline of the party are something that is very worrisome to those who believe that the left should act within the established institutions, however weak and however dysfunctional they are, without taking to the streets. I mean, think about it. There are four PRD governors, hundreds of congressmen and senators, 
And the moral uh, leader of their party is now saying to hell with the institutions, institutions that they are a part of. Are they going to give up their position in those institutions? Are they going to give up the federal funding that they receive and all of the benefits that come along with being a governor and a legislator in Mexico? I don't think that that's the case. And perhaps what you alluded to may become more common. I find it surprising that the PRD hasn't reacted in this way before, that it's taken them two and a half months to question whether or not what they're doing is good for the party or not. Hi. Um, I, I was wondering, um, in, a, in a slightly different vein, um, if things had turned out differently so that uh, Lopez Obrador wasn't in the streets but actually was, was getting inaugurated or had gotten inaugurated, um, what would he have done to achieve some of his obviously very, very ambitious uh, goals? Well, he published a book where he talked about his alternative project for the nation and also spelled out 50 commitments that he had with Mexico. And it was a moderate agenda. There was nothing in there that should have scared Mexico's elites. It was basically a model that called for greater state intervention in the economy, for greater protection, particularly in the agricultural sector, and an economic vision that was based on government investment in infrastructure as a way of providing jobs and restarting the Mexican economy. People like Carlos Slim were very happy about this because they believed that they would benefit, they would profit from an alliance with the government in, in a way that many have profited from the public, the ambitious public works that he carried out in Mexico City. And I think his whole goal was to provide employment and get the economy growing at a faster pace. Things that I think no reasonable person in Mexico would have been in disagreement with. I think the questions arose more about the methods and whether Mexico's economic future should be based on public investment in infrastructure and why not investment in technology or education or um, taking on monopolies in these key areas that I've addressed that, to me, constitute greater obstacles to economic growth than the lack of public investment in infrastructure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mexican political scientist Denise Dresser. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. Election Day is right around the corner. Do you know which candidate should get your vote? KPCC can help. 